Hi, and welcome to episode two of Authorised. I'm Kevin Hillier. Today, we take you into the sport arena. In the first episode, we went into uh, music with Jeff Apter and his book, Friday on My Mind, the George Young story. And today, uh, we take you uh, into the sporting arena, into the football world. And the book is Crimo, the story of Peter Crimmins, written by Dan Eddy, who's written about half a dozen books on his own and co-written six others, in mostly in the sporting arena. And uh, today, this is just a terrific story. It really is a great story. The late Peter Crimmins, unfortunately. And for those uh, non-AFL people who are listening to this, you're going to love this story because it is a story of guts and determination and of devotion and of a, of a whole lot more. So we'll get Dan to explain exactly the Peter Crimmins story and uh, what interested and intrigued him about it uh, to want to uh, put this uh, book together. Uh, we thank, once again, our terrific partners at CSCG, the CS Consulting Group. Now, if you're having financial difficulties of any description, and geez, aren't we all in some way, they're the people to talk to. Uh, they're no-nonsense people in terms of they'll tell you exactly what's going on. They won't, they'll talk straight to you. They won't, won't give you any uh, any runaround. They'll be direct uh, and, and they know what they're doing, which is the other really important part of all this. You can give them a call. They're in Melbourne on double nine seven four. 8333-9974-8333 or jump on their website and have a look at their services, have a look at the people involved. Uh, it's cscg.com.au. Uh, they're all COVID-19 uh, protocols are in place, uh, so they'll, uh, they'll be able to look after you uh, even in these uh, very challenging times that we're living in at the moment. cscg.com.au or give them a call on 9974-8333. Let's get to our guest. Uh, the man that we're talking about today played 176 games for the Hawks. He was a club captain, a premiership player, and, of course, uh, the drama that unfolded in the mid-1970s around Peter Crimmins is uh, folklore and uh, and is one of the one of the great stories, one of the sad stories, too, in many ways, about, uh, about football and about the people involved at football clubs. Also, uh, we're going to go inside the Hawthorne Footy Club uh, during this podcast, to a man who was in the 1976 grand final team, was part of that premiership team, but uh, had only just come to the club that year. Uh, but uh, the way that uh, the whole Crimmins aura affected him, we'll find out from Rodney Eid, a man who played uh, a lot of games himself, over 250 games, and then went and coached nearly 400 games on top of that. So he has a great knowledge about football, a great insight about football, and most importantly, a great insight about the Hawthorne Football Club. Rocket is coming up a little later on in this podcast, but let's get to Dan Eddy, the man who's written Crimo, the Peter Crimmins story. What uh, drew you to do this book on Peter Crimmins now? I was researching some other um, stories about Hawthorne and I tracked down Gwen Crimmins and went and saw her and Gwen was really, really opened up and was really emotional when we got talking about Peter and it was an eye-opener for me being so long ago. I didn't realise it was still so raw and uh, I'd, I'd become fascinated in Peter when I was 15 saw the Australian 100 Years of Australian Football documentary in, in 1996 and they had a segment on Peter Crimmins and I was, I was captivated by it and Gwen spoke on it and she seemed really strong and, um, yeah, just really interested me. So I've always been interested in Crimo, but it wasn't until we were sitting across from each other probably three years ago and I realised just how powerful this story still was um, for the people who, who knew Peter and that's begun the journey. We realised it was time it was told. I'm not sure why it hadn't been told to that point, but um, I'm glad that it hadn't because now I've been able to piece together <laughs> the full story. So it's been uh, very rewarding, but it just came about through uh, 
getting that opportunity to to chat with Gwen one day. And there is there is so many little kind of little rabbit holes that you you fall into when you when you delve into this story. I mean, the seventy five uh, grand final and the revolt with the players and all the the selection part. You've you've kind of put all that stuff together, haven't you? Because that's that's been pretty much one of those talked about but never known about uh, parts of footy history. For sure. And again, Gwen was so. Um Emotive in the way she explained the the hurt Peter and the family felt at Peter not being selected in that seventy five grand final, and um, I'm I'm obsessed with grand finals. Uh, Dipper says he was born to play in them, and I say <laughs> I was born to write about them. So <laughs> I um, I I love delving into the backstories of of the old grand finals, and this one just um, yeah attracted me in when I realised just how much Peter was hurt by it, and then I heard his his tape that he made afterwards and Jeez, yeah, um, yeah that, that was really raw stuff and so it I wanted to find there were six selectors who made that decision to not select oh yeah there were six in the selection meeting Peter was one of them so um, he was outvoted by the other five and I wanted to wanted to understand what went on in that room that was really the heart of what was going to make that story come to life so I there was four living selectors still around, so I was able to interview all four of them. Thankfully, I got to John Kennedy um, when he was still fit and well, and yeah. um, and then Peter's tape. So I've got the words from five of those six selectors, so I was really fortunate. So hopefully um, that now tells the full story of what what supposedly went on in that room and in the lead-up to it because it was pretty, pretty uh, tense leading up. Oh, was, the, uh, was the clarity of everyone's memory of that pretty good? Um, they all differed slightly in terms of, but like, for the most part, the same answer was made that it was a decision based on his health. Um, a couple differ in who who were more vocal. Um, Peter accused a couple of saying too much or not saying enough, and others say, "Oh no, he certainly had his say." And others said, "No, he didn't say anything." So there is a there's still some iffy iffies. They're, they're really. Um, and I, I feel they're all pretty honest with me, so it's, it's interesting that there is such a uh, differing of opinions of it, but it is, you know, almost five decades ago, so it's, it's a fair while back. I can't remember yesterday, so it's, <laughs> uh, I'm pretty impressed just with what they were able to remember. But, um, yeah, there's a few differing accounts of who who were more vocal in the meeting. At the end of the day, John Kennedy was the one who had the final say, so he could have at the end said, Matt will play him, and uh, John said, "No, I, I just couldn't do it." And and is the resounding kind of resolution of it that they made the wrong call? Um, yeah, it's it's very interesting getting a, a feel for the room in terms of the players that played in the grand final on the Saturday, and and even one of the selectors told me he walked into the rooms at the MCG that Saturday and he looked around and he just thought to himself, "We're stuffed today." He yeah. just knew that he just sensed that they were off. Whereas if you talk to a couple of a couple of the senior players like Don Scott and Lee Matthews, they didn't feel there was anything like that. But then you speak with the majority felt it wasn't right, something wasn't right. And quite a few felt that Peter should have been selected and expected him to be selected. So even if they, they're still consciously preparing for a grand final and you know, their minds are on that, there's, there's obviously something in there where they're thinking about Peter that may just have took a couple of percentage away from how they performed because too many of them were flat that day. John Hendry, uh, some of the really top players were really, really down. And, and a few of them still say, Alan Martello and guys like that say, Peter should have played. Yeah. So 
it was really interesting getting a feel for that room because North Melbourne must have, Ron Brassie must have been licking his lips knowing that there was a yeah. bit of tension going on behind the scenes. Once I got that selector's view that there was some real issues in the rooms, you went, okay, there's something wrong here. He's made the call to leave Peter out and he's sent, oh, no, we've made a mistake. Twelve months later, the the scenario is so absolutely diametrically different. Yeah, one thing that gets forgotten a bit throughout 76 is what an amazing feat it was to... I mean, we take for granted that they're back in the grand final and they've got a good team, and but to mentally keep themselves up week after week, watching their best mate fade away was a real credit to the group and to John Kennedy and assistant coach David Park, and it was a real credit to what they are able to do because somehow they were able to compartmentalise that and still go out and play really well, even though particularly by finals time they realised Peter was really, really struggling. And uh, that, yeah, that gets forgotten a bit, but it was an amazing feat that year to to, to go on and do what they did. And, and you're right, by grand final day, it was clear that Peter was um, near the end, unfortunately, and there was no need for Kennedy to yell and scream in the dressing room before the game. He just quietly read out the, the telegram Peter sent them. And then, and then uh, there was a few other choice words, as in... Uh, there's a lot of reasons you have to win today, but most of all, do it for the little fella, things yeah. like that. And that, John Hendry said, my, you know, the hair's still on the back of my neck standing up today, 50 years later, talking about that because it is, he takes himself to that room and it was quiet. It wasn't, there was no rah rah. They didn't need to. They just knew today's the day. No one will beat us. And three days later, he, uh, he passed away. Yeah, so a few guys, as we know, took the cup out to him that night at his house and it was that famous photograph by Clive McKinnon and yeah. uh, won the award for Photograph of the Year about a week later. So it was a really powerful photo. And um, and you're right, a few guys who saw him that night, like Peter Knights, and they never saw him again. I think John Kennedy might have seen him the next day, went out to his house, but and there was a there was a just a, a conga line of well wishes over the last few weeks of his life. But yeah, uh, the early hours of the Tuesday morning, he he passed away, and a lot of guys tell me you know, they just still live with the regret that they didn't get out to see him in those last couple of days, and and the outpouring of grief after that was unprecedented, really, for the coverage that it received and and the money raising that went on to raise money for his family and for cancer research in the weeks and months after that was, again, unprecedented stuff. That uh, that photo, uh, award-winning as it is, is also iconic for so many so many other things, and so uh, it's been described as the as the photo that uh, that epitomises the family club more than anything else. But there's a little bit of um, kind of uh, I guess uh, jockeying around. Who owns the thumb in the background? Is there some sort of ownership uh, uh, sort of uh, 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 battle going on there over whose thumb that actually is up in the background behind his head? Yeah, it was the mystery I asked everyone who was there. And um, Peter's brother, Barry, his older brother, said, that's definitely my thumb. And then um, one of Barry's best friends from up at Shepherd, and he, he said, no, that's definitely my thumb. Um, uh, Ray Glynn was his name. He said, I was in the back. I chucked the thumb up, but I didn't realise it was going to actually be in the photo. I just just did it for a bit of fun. But, yeah, so a bit of mystery around that. And there's a lot of other guys that were actually there that weren't in the photo. They just got the premiership guys to stand in there, but there was quite a few other Hawthorne players that went along. Um, David O'Halloran and uh, Kevin Heath was there, I think, and yeah, there's a handful of guys there that didn't jump in the photo, so it could have been a much bigger photo, but, yeah, it was... And a few guys at the 
at the club who said, oh, no, I'll go and see him tomorrow. So they didn't go out that night and, you know, they, they probably wish they did because it was such a special couple of hours. A very emotional time, obviously, for the people involved around the football club heading into that 1976 grand final. So let's take you to a man who was part of that 1976 premiership team. As I mentioned earlier, played over 250 games himself, then went on to coach 377 games and a very successful playing and coaching career. A bloke who I wrote a book about a few years ago called Rocket Science. His name, of course, is Rodney Ede. Okay, Rocket. So '76 was a was a pivotal year for you. You came across from uh, Glenorchy, and you, uh, you 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 made your debut late in the year and played in the grand final. What was the feeling like around the club from your point of view with 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 the Peter Crimmins situation? Yeah, they, they didn't talk about it a lot. And me, as you said, being my first show, I didn't arrive till the January. And I met Peter a couple of times. Um, he turned up the pre-season training a couple of times, and then we played a, what was called then an escort cup game in Perth, and. He hopped on the bus after the game, must have been over there for, for Puma. And I didn't see much after the start of the season. Obviously, he was, he was ill. And being a new boy, a new kid on the block, that obviously not in those circles with the with the players who are great mates of his. But there was always a, a bit of it. You hear, you know, as a comment about Crimo here and there. Even some of them didn't realise how ill he was. And then, you know, you read the book that uh, sort of kept in the dark as well. Didn't really hit its crescendo, I think, until the final series and then obviously John read that uh, or as it was in the telegram yeah. those days before the game. How did, how did that feel for you? Because I mean you weren't you weren't as you say you weren't a, a mate of his as such you, you knew of him and you knew of his aura around the club. Did it have an effect on you on the day? Um, it did to a degree yes more than I would have thought um, because you see the reaction of the other guys what it meant and what he meant to them. Yep. Um, so it was, it was a hook in many ways, um, and only having played eight or nine games at that stage, but even the training, hearing John's voice and what a commanding voice it was and deep and, and great orator, the way he read the telegram was different and you could see the emotion, uh, it was laced with emotion the way he spoke, um, that it you know, was quite, uh, deep in its, in its meaning and deep in its feeling, so you could see the, uh, the effect it had on the guys, yeah, for sure. As an 18-year-old then, I mean, you're obviously trying to deal with the fact that you're in uh, in a grand final, uh, your first year in the, in the in the big league and all that sort of stuff. You're dealing with all that and that's kind of uh, playing out around you as well. Must have been uh, must have been a lot to take in. Yeah, I suppose, thinking back, I didn't try and take in the, the telegram and the aspect of that. Yep. Um, I just sort of... I think it was more about, okay, that exists, but you don't think like this, you've got a job to do, but you're just saying, okay, look at a book going play, and it was more channeling your thoughts and your focus, your energies on being able to play. You know, you said going to the grand final, it's only my ninth game. You know, you play the game a little bit in your mind and hope you get a kick and all these sorts of things go through your head. So it was more about the game, I think, uh, yep. uh, which was probably fortunate anyways. I think if maybe, uh, you know, we won the game, obviously, but whether it did affect some people to a detriment as far as not being able to play their ability, I haven't heard anyone say that, but everyone seemed to, um, who knew him, wanted to play the best they could because they wanted to win it for Peter. Afterwards, and uh, obviously three or four days later, he, he passed away after that '76 Grand Final. Um, the, the 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 kind of the way that lingered around the club or stayed around the club. How did how did you feel about that? And I mean, you obviously spent a lot of time at Hawthorne after that. Uh, his his legacy lived on for a long, long time, and, and still to this day. Oh, very much. So. Yeah, he's 
now they put the portrait up in the chain in the club and renamed the best and fairest. I don't know what year they did that. Yeah, he was there, left a, an unbelievable legacy and still talk today. I think, you know, Nike was back, I think he's retired now, Pete, but Nike was part of induction. We talk about the spirit of Crimo and um, talking to him about that in, you know, inducting the, the new boys into what he meant and what he was about. And I think he just epitomised what they liked to talk about the Hawthorne spirit and uh, the, what John probably engendered in the club when he uh, started as coach. And even he, he, he always says he's coach before that, but he, um, no, really the way John went about it and what he stood for was really carried on through the players, but it's actually Peter. And, uh, and I think Crimo, uh, to every, all and sundry was, uh, you know, well, you know, was what, what the club was about. So yeah, there's a lot of big legacy and as you said, still to today. And being a Hawthorne person as you were for so many years, did that sort of almost ingrain itself in you as well? Oh yeah, very much so. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, that you knew this significance of number five and, um, no, I'd seen Peter play. Um, I don't think with his with his sons, uh, Ben and Sam, yeah. um, for a while. Then worked with uh, Ben at Collingwood when I was there. You know, Sam reasonably well, and uh, you know, when the Bulldogs used to go up to Darwin, he was working up there, so I catch up with, with Sam all the time when he was up there. So yeah, you're aware of the legacy and you're aware what it mean meant. Uh, I suppose the Crimson's home around the club. Rodney Ead with his thoughts on uh, the Peter Crimmins aura around the Hawthorne Football Club there in 1976. All right, let's get back to the story with the man who's written this book, and the book is out and about now and available through Slattery Media and available at all good bookstores, as they all are. It's Crimo, the story of Peter Crimmins, by uh, our guest today, the author, Dan Eddy. Dan, you mentioned that uh, you were captivated by seeing the, the story on him in the '96, uh, you know, documentary about the hundred years of footy. What what did you what what did you learn about Peter Crimmins doing this book that you didn't know beforehand? Um, probably gets lost just how great a player he was for starters. There's a couple of things that really stand out, and that's that's one. I mean, he the peak of his powers. He he's Hawthorne's automatic number one rover, and Lee Matthews is number two. Um, Jeez. Yeah, yeah, and we're talking about the play of the century, so it, it really puts it in – and Lee admits that. He says, I knew my place. I, I was number two to Crimo. So at, at his yeah. peak, he was as good. In 1972, he was one of the favourites for the Brownlow. Um, as I point out in the book, he was known to give a little bit of chat back to the umpires, so he never actually polled that well. But in the media awards, he was, he was at the top for most of that 72 season, and – so he was a really he was a gun player, and so I was I was un, unaware just how great he was in that sense. But and the other one is just how important he was to the entire fabric of the Hawthorne Footy Club. Him, him and Gwen, their place was almost the Hawthorne Social Club in a way. That was where everyone headed out to after on a Saturday night or Sundays. There was always working bees at a Hawthorne players. Um, place and then they'd hang around afterwards and watch the VFA on the TV and they'd um, yeah have a few drinks and just the wives and the kids and everyone would hang out together and Lee Matthews says Peter was the glue that that kept the Hawthorne Footy Club together so Peter and Gwen were so central to everything I didn't probably realise the just how much people lent on them as as the real um, uh, guiding guiding couple, I guess, in the club, and they were really influential. So that was that was probably something that really stood out, and I tried to capture that throughout the story um, from people who'd come in from interstate or just people who only met him a couple of times. The impact that Peter had on, it seems like every person he came across, yeah. he, uh, he he left an impact. It might have just been a supporter that ran on the field after games at Glenfrey Oval to pat him on the back. or um, One time, one, one girl, Michelle Basua, she was only – 
maybe 12 or 13, and she invited Peter to go along for lunch at her mother's house one day. I mean, imagine asking Luke Hodge or someone to do that, and you're not expecting a reply, but she got a reply back, and Peter said, look, maybe later in the year, and sure enough, later in the year, Peter and Gwen and, and their young son Ben uh, trekked out to the house for, for lunch with mum and the daughter. So it was little stories like that summed up just how why he still has such an impact on anyone associated with Hawthorne. Is it part of the kind of pre-corporate football world too, before, you know, we became a big business and it was still very much, very much a family-orientated smaller organisation? Yeah, definitely. And I think because Hawthorne had spent decades without any success at all, they had to have other reasons to have a positive vibe around the club. So during the 40s, 50s, and, and then into the 60s, um, when money certainly wasn't a big issue in terms of player contracts or anything, um, people wanted to be around the club because it involved everyone, you know. It didn't matter who you were or what background or male, female or whatever. It was just all all inclusive. And even Paul Salmon, later on when he gets there in the mid-90s, told me that, you know, he'd, he'd be working working out in the gym there, doing a few bicep curls, and in would walk just someone off the street and they'd just start lifting a few weights themselves. And that, he said that was just the Hawthorne, completely different to Essendon where he'd been before then. And that that was sort of the, the way the whole way through, back through the 60s, 70s, before money was an issue, you know. It was yeah. They just loved being around the club. And that, that 1971 group that Crimo was a part of that won the premiership, they're as close as any premiership team. They're probably the closest of any Hawthorne premiership team in that's ever happened. There's obviously been a few, but they they remain and the wives and and they all remain the best of friends. So it's, it's, it's something about the club. And it was you're right before money become an issue and before um, contract debates and different things happened. It was it was just the place to be for so many reasons. Uh, it's often uh, talked about a lot. Uh, you know the the courageous uh, uh, being used in in the same sentence with Peter Crimmins' name. Every time you you talk about him, uh, talk about his courage and uh, what he went through to actually get up and play during the time that he was suffering uh, from the from the the cancer is quite unbelievable. When it's when it's laid on the table and you see what he did, yeah, it was really hard asking Gwen about this and and the teammates and 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 delving into it because. Yeah. Trying to put yourself in his shoes, it's really um, starts feeling a pain in his testicle in the um, early '74, yep. and uh, he goes to the club doctor and just gets a few anti-inflammatories, thinks it'll go away, and uh, it doesn't go away. But he doesn't say much else about it, and um, the doc doesn't really pick up the fact that. It's getting larger and it's getting more painful. Maybe we should go and get this checked. But no, Peter wants to keep playing and the doctor hasn't said anything. And um, so by the end of that 74 season, uh, the last probably six weeks, he's playing with his testicles so swollen that it's taped to his leg um, to oh. get through a game and he's injected with painkiller to get through. I mean, that's that's just unimaginable, really. And some of his teammates didn't know that until I told them and they were just flabbergasted and that's what he did to try and get up and play and even when the pain became too much with two rounds to go in 74 he he uh, he went and saw you know a specialist and they said this needs to come out and we need to get it checked and and he said well I'm going to play next week and then you can take it out and then we'll yeah <laughs> I'll try and get through to the end of the finals and then you can take it out but he got through that next game somehow I don't know how and then he just said no it's too much so they took it out then and um, so he, the pain that he put himself through to play was unbelievable. And then, yeah, and then you're right, he, he, he works 
works his butt off to come back after having a few weeks of, of treatment for for cancer. He comes back a bit in 75, plays a few games, and again, it, it comes back. But he, he, he looks physical perfection at the time. He's, he's chiseled, he's, he looks fit, he looks, you know, just looks the ultimate man, and yet his body's uh, becoming riddled with cancer, and it's just hard hard to imagine what he went through. But I can't, I hadn't found anyone who, com- who told me he ever complained. So yeah, <laughs> I, I, just the unbelievable courage. Yeah, yeah. it is. It is. It's it's, it's quite un- unbelievable. Is the only word I can think of. Um, the the folklore mm. around how he uh, how he got the cancer and and the, the stories around that. Uh, have you addressed that in the book in 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 terms of uh, you know the the often talked about story of him being flicked by a towel and all that stuff? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I. The rumour was that it was Don Scott who flicked him. Yep. Some say a towel, some say with his fingers, and, and just caught him in that right in the in the groin there. And he 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 told Gwen afterwards that it definitely happened and it definitely hurt afterwards. And she said from then on there was pain. But there's differing accounts of whether it did or didn't. But the point of it I really wanted to know was would could anything like that actually cause cancer in there. And so I went and spoke with Dr. Ben Tran at the uh, Peter McCallum Cancer Clinic in Melbourne and, and he said categorically no way could that cause it. Yeah. And he actually, he said what it could do is uh, make the injury bleed and then and then that brings it to the surface and you're aware that there's something there which looks like that's what's happened. And um, But he said in most likelihood it was probably there for a couple of years before anyone realised. So I, that was the clearing up bit that yeah, certainly conjecture. Gwen's adamant it happened, and Gwen Gwen would know better than anyone. So um, it likely did happen, but in no way was it medically proven that that could have actually caused it. Yeah, the the the, the legacy left uh, as a player obviously is is obvious, the Peter Crimmins medal. But uh, in terms of uh, what it did uh, to his family, uh, and I guess in particular to his two boys, Ben and Sam, uh, and what uh, you know they they kept the jumper sort of there. If one of those two had come through and and uh, was there for them to have, but uh, how, how did they kind of uh, handle the, the legacy of having Peter Crimmins as their dad? Yeah, the sad reality is that Sam has no memories of Peter. He was only two at the time, so that's yeah. really sad. But um, but he has a great outlook. Sam, he's got his dad's really bubbly, positive personality and his hand-eye coordination. He was a good cricketer like like his dad was. And But Ben Ben was four and he, he had a few memories of his dad. So for Ben, and I shed a few tears writing these chapters because it was really, I've got a young son and I just know how devastating it would be to, to picture him in the same situation and you know, Ben would sit on his front door each night for the first few weeks after Peter died, waiting for his dad to come home from work. Oh, you know, and then he'd cry himself to sleep that night. So he he um, he did it really tough. And growing up, he was yeah, he had a few, I guess, anger problems, and and really struggled to comprehend that dad wasn't around. And it it took probably moving to Assumption College um, in his teens, and where Peter actually went as well. And yep. um, it just some of the teachings there and it, it gave him a different perspective and it changed his outlook a bit. And I think it was, it was a really critical moment in his life because he was, he was really struggling for a long, long time through that. And, and his, his accounts really raw again in the book. Um, he wrote a lot of stuff down and I'm fortunate that Gwen kept everything that was ever written about Peter and the boys and herself. So um, I've got the, the letters and the school reports and things that Ben did that, just show just how much he was struggling with it and 
But and again, as you say, that Hawthorne retired Peter's jumper and said, "We'll bring it out if if one of you two boys are good enough to make it." So there's no pressure on the boys oh, there yeah, to try right. <laughs> <laughs> and and Ben did did really well. He got to under 19s level at Hawthorne, but couldn't go to that next the senior level there. But he gave it a crack, and and Sam admits that he was allergic to pre-season, so he was probably <laughs> never going to uh, get there. But on talent alone, he was as good as as good as Peter in in certain certain ways but he just didn't have Peter's dedication so they had to crack the boys and you know they they really they turned out terrific young men and 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 Ben Ben works at Collingwood of all clubs he's been there for about 20 years now and done really well for himself and Sam's got his own finance business so they've, they've really done well but it must have been just so hard in those first few years and the the romance of footy is that that number five jumper, you know, first went to Andy Collins. Uh, he was the first one to get it after they bought it out of retirement. And uh, the, I mean, a gutsier kind of player of the modern era, you, you'd be very hard pressed to find. Yeah, definitely. Andy Collins grew up. Uh, Peter Crimmins, he, he had his number five on his back, and he just idolised him. And it's just ironic that Andy had the similar look with the the blonde hair, and yeah. he threw himself in it balls that he shouldn't have thrown himself in at. He wasn't the biggest bloke, so very. you couldn't have picked a better bloke to, to be given the jumper first up. And then he started a bit of a tradition of handing it on to an up-and-coming young talent. And the next one was Daniel Harford, and then Half had a very good career. And then probably the greatest to wear it is Sam Mitchell, who, who came in next and, again, looked a bit like Peter and, yeah. and ended up playing, oh, I think it was 299 games in it in that jumper. So... He was um, he was probably the one that the the modern day kids would would recognise with the number five, and then and Sam really embraced all the number fives. They embraced the Crimmins family and the legacy of what that number five meant. And Brian Burton had it for a couple of years before he got traded to Port Adelaide, and and James Warple won the best and fairest last year in it, and the youngest since Lee Matthews from decades ago. So um, they've, they've probably picked the right one again there. So the number five. I spoke with the club historian Peter Havey and he said that up until Crimo that probably wasn't recognised as a as a club great jumper. It was, you know, a few good players that had it, but it wasn't really you know, they didn't carry on in the same way that they do today in terms of how they pump up club jumper numbers. So yeah. it was really Crimo that Crimo really made the number five become a, a thing, if you want to put it that way. And now yeah. today the Hawthorne boardroom at Waverley Park, uh, there's only one jumper hanging up in there and that's Primo's number five. Yeah, uh, and fittingly uh, as well. What's the uh, what's the family's relationship with the football club these days? No, very good. Um, Quinn was number one ticket holder for a couple of years for the female number one ticket holder, and it just happened that Peter Hudson was the male one, so the Hudson Crimson's uh, names were living on it at, at uh, Hawthorne, which was fantastic because yeah. Peter and Peter had uh, played together so many times over the years. That remains good, and Gwen presents the Peter Crimmins Medal every every year, so she's still very heavily involved with that, and I'm sure the boys will get to do that eventually. And they they get doted on on Peter Crimmins Medal Night. I, I got invited last year, and they were yeah they were treated like royalty, and it's fantastic. And yeah, the club was always great at embracing the boys, and they'd be in there before all those grand finals they played in. The boys would be in the rooms before the games, and the the club was really good in that sense. So they've remained a really strong connection with the, with the club. And I guess the good thing is uh, a book like this allows us to uh, to not only remember all the all the things that went on uh, in that sort of 75-76 era, but to remember back uh, to 176 games and 231 goals and a bloody good footballer uh, before all the all the kind of drama part of uh, of his career happened. 
Yeah, I, I tried to make it a real social history as well and um, show why Peter stood out in in that era. And, and you, you need to understand the context of where the club was at and where the game was at and how, how it was televised. And so I really tried to paint a rounded picture of where he grew up and what how he developed certain attributes. And hopefully that helps paint a better understanding of what, what he was like during his his uh, decade at Hawthorne and um, it's more than just a footy book in that sense because um, we understand all about the training that went on the famous commando training I delve into that and um, that was really interesting and uh, we understand what the social side of the club was like Um, yeah and we look even just growing up in Shepparton and just understanding how um, what the environment was like for him and how it really helped develop him as well so um, hope, yeah, I, I try to do that when I write my books. You don't want to just know how they kicked the goals. You want to know how they got to that point to, to be able to kick the goals. So that's um, that was my motivation to really understand Peter and the, and the times he lived in. You've done Dick Reynolds, you've done Jezza, you've done uh, Nick Rewalt, uh, you've done Peter Crimmins, so you've done six books of your own and then you've co-written a, another six. What's next, Dan? Yeah, I'm working on Peter Hudson biography at the oh, moment. Beautiful. Um, which, uh, yeah, everyone's favourite, Peter Hudson. is such a great story. And also looking at the Hawthorne and Melbourne merger from 1996. Uh, there's a couple of books there. And I may, I may do one on that, on the famous Carlton 1972-73 clashes with Richmond in those grand finals as well. So there's a few things I'm uh, keen to delve into. Beautiful. Well, uh, congratulations on uh, on getting this one out. It's a great story, very well told, and uh, and good luck with it, mate. Thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Really appreciate it, Kevin. It's a great story. It's a very touching story. It's a moving story. It's a story of so many different emotions, and Dan has captured it beautifully in the book. Crimo, the story of Peter Crimmins by Dan Eddy, and we look forward to that Peter Hudson book too when he uh, gets uh, gets his head down and bum up and gets stuck into that. But if there's a more courageous footballer and a more courageous story around in footy, uh, geez, I don't know what it uh, what it would be. Uh, so check the book out, Crimo, the story of Peter Crimmins. My thanks to Dan, but thanks also to Rodney Ead for his time and sharing his thoughts on what it was like to be at the Hawthorne Football Club back in that uh, that very emotional time of the 1976 Grand Final. And thanks again also to uh, our terrific partners uh, in this podcast, Authorised. That's cscg.com.au, the CS Consulting Group. Finance is a very tricky and uh, balancing act uh, for most of us uh, during our lives. If you want some help, these are the people to talk to. They know what they're talking about. They have skills across a wide range of areas and uh, they've got people that are experts in those areas and they can help you out. Double nine seven four eight triple three is the phone number or go to their website, cscg.com.au. Financial planning, lending, whatever it is, they have a range of business advisory services as well. So they're a one-stop shop for everything you need for your finances. cscg.com.au. Double nine seven four eight triple three. Hope you've enjoyed this particular edition of Authorise the Podcast. Uh, we've done music, we've done sport. We'll do something different next time. Hope you can join me then. 